second grade at the Prima Donna Club Park. My name is Matt Bench. I'm a composer and sound artist from Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge that this podcast was recorded and produced on Sound Remote, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. For more information about the podcast, you can visit primadonnapodcast.com. The first portrait in this series is of Jure Dara, percussionist, restaurateur, social worker, board member of the Victorian Women's Trust and West Penny Public Office. Jerry is Indian by race, Malaysian by birth, and Australian by choice. She came to Australia as a teenager and was very generous in her time, detailing her experience growing up in an outpost home and as a woman in open hospitality ending the first months of her new life. There is a language moment in this episode. There's a central point in my life in the last 25 years uh, for me to grow as a woman is that I, like many other women, feel very enraged by decades of awareness and um, years of women not being equal citizens uh, because there's no gender lens so that women's views are not reflected in our laws, in our practices, our relationships our government, our banks, everywhere. So luckily for us that we, because we bring up families or we are given the capacity to manage people, we have a women's movement and that's the only reason why we've got the vote. And it's the only, because it's all been women's work. It was never given to us. It's like the Aboriginal people in this country. It's their dignity and their right has never been given. They've had to fight for it. They've been punished for it first, disassociated, you know, um, cut up, beaten up, and, and now they have to fight for it. And even now, right in the face of their own truth and their intelligence, they're being insulted in the same way as women are. So the Women's Trust, the Kane government, because of a relationship of about 12 women, some of whom were in the who were in government with the Kane government, with John Kane, and his advisors, who were some really good men that are still working for women in the community. They decided to give the women a million dollars in respect and, and recognition of the work they've been done since Federation. Can you believe this? One million. Pitiful amount, but that's okay. We were happy. And these women, about 12 of them, who still somehow are still around and still love working in the sector, I convinced them that we didn't want to buy a building, we wanted to have a benevolent trust. And so there, the Victorian Women's Trust had a million dollars, of which we still have 500, 30 years later. We've just had our 30th anniversary.
were the first organization to fund only for women. So you can imagine, it was about 20 years of why women. And of course, it enrages one and it, and it adds to the anger and the angst that you may be harboring about your own um, life where you have been disaffected. And so, of course, when the 60s and 70s came and we were burning bras and thinking we were liberating ourselves, really what we were doing is having a big party to celebrate about having freedom and to march and to talk together, but really we weren't working on strategies that affected the law or affected the relationship of how we, we did research and how we presented a case. So what's really exciting for me is that while I play improvised music and while I am an activist, I now understand that being unwieldy was actually about not being adult. <laughs> Very simple, really. And the 60s it gave me permission to say and do whatever I wanted. Well, I now understand in 73, you can't do and want whatever you want because then we'd all be having everybody else's killing and... Uh, being out of control. But what is not being talked about is being out of control about human rights. And what women are not talking about is that we are outraged. We are full of rage. And so are Aboriginal people, but they have their connection to the land that gives them a peaceful outlook. But displaced people like me, you know, I came here because my family had money to educate me here, so the dollar gave me my entrance. But like all refugees, I was seeking safe refuge in this country. And my mechanics of how to live was that of a survivor. Not of a person who's having a life that come to terms with where they landed themselves, come to terms with who gave them permission and who didn't give them permission. And so I became very good at forming relationships because I spoke English and because I was an only child and I lived a pretty fantasy world and my fantasy was to come to Australia to study because the Olympics had been here which means they, they knew how to be with black people. Then I remembered that they had indigenous people who I never met till I was properly and didn't learn to love and learn and have a friendship with till I was 40. I came here when I was barely 16 and the government allowed me as a private student with a guarantee of money from my mother. My mother was happy to see me go and I was happy to run away. I came here entirely on my own, but I was going to hide behind my girlfriend, who was slim and vivacious and knew what boys smelt like and I didn't. I was plump and, and, and studious, and she was her, her mother ran the only nightclub in town, uh, in tiny town that I lived in, and my mother ran the strictest girls' school, and neither of the twain would meet. And Indians uh, didn't like the Chinese much. We all lived very close to each other, but we didn't war with each other because we were all refugees you know, from, from Malay culture. And the Chinese thought that the Indians smelt of coconut oil, which a lot of us did because we oiled our bodies and our hair. And the, the, the Indians thought that the Chinese were weird because they talked, the, the Cantonese that they spoke was so aggressive sounding and they were such good business people that they put the two together and thought they were just, you know, brisk. And, and the Malays, who were like, like islander people, you know, had that very sweet culture, sort of 
didn't really compete, but they hadn't taken hold of nationalism yet. So I grew up in a very idyllic three, three nationalities and the whites who some of us courted and some of us rejected or worshipped or adored. My family, being English educated, my grandfather studied Latin, so you can imagine they looked to England for everything. My mother went to England when she had a Frobel scholarship for art. And I was like four years old and didn't know where she was going because she didn't have conversations with her children. So she never asked me or told me where she was going. So I had a few kind of dysfunctional attitudes toward life. And one was to be a rebel and a smart ass. So here I was at nearly 16 with a Chinese girlfriend who the teachers didn't like me associating with because Bonnie was seen as a slut. A slut is always someone that people think is highly sexualized, so she's evil, even because she's attracted to men and she talks to men. But really, they're people, they're men generally who feel bad that they weren't chosen to be with this person. So the word slut is really a slur on the girl for not wanting them. Yes. And I'm so pleased to know that because Moni was seen as a slut, even though she was brilliant. And I was seen as the bookish, weird daughter of this weird woman who nobody knew, but had this persona of being like a princess, a headmistress, right? She drove a car, she rode a bicycle. She was very tragic because my father and she were separated. So she had this persona of being a beautiful, sad woman. But she was also kind of remote to me because of her sadness. She never turned her back on me. But both my parents never got together. So at 16, we thought we'd get the hell out of Melbourne, uh, out of Ipoh. We knew the mistresses of everybody's father. We lived in the tiniest little bloody town. So we'd heard about Peyton Place. So we thought, we're getting out of our Peyton Place. So we both asked our parents separately. And I was going to hide behind Moni, who was worldly and vivacious. Because I'd never been in public transport, I'd never had pocket money, I'd never cooked, I didn't understand the chemistry of making a soup needing liquid. Two days before we left, her mother pulled out, pulled out. And I was on my own, on a plane coming to Australia, knowing no one, but I'd written to the education department and they put me in a school called Heidelberg High School, which was a, a, a working class, a commission house, new village where the Olympic village had been. And I was the only Asian girl there. And people talked to me very loudly in case I didn't speak English. And it was a very white Australia, but I, can I tell you, I learned everything about white culture in Australia and I charmed the very people who actually lived their sh ripped their shirts open in trams and showed me their battle scars with the Japanese and thought I was Japanese and then little kids who thought I, uh, I could teach them how to build humpies and little kids who thought I lived in trees and people who didn't know why I used whether I used toothpaste or not and and, a mo and, and boyfriends mothers who who muttered under their breaths one will be white one will be black one will be khaki and I used to be so precocious and rebellious because I'd been this, this persona in, at home that I was a good debater 
and I was a smart ass. So when somebody in South Yarra said, you're very clean for an Indian, I said, well, I'm used to running water where I come from. Mm. But where I live in Heidelberg, I'm the first of five people's baths because I pay 15 guineas for my room. And when I was told by my boyfriend's mother that one would be black, one would be white, one would be khaki, I said, oh, no, 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 they'll all be black because we're a dominant gene. Now, they're not the sensible words of a young girl. That's uh, someone doing battle with the world. So no wonder I got to um, play with sticks and stones uh, and join being a percussionist, ringing bells. I came to Australia and I could use all sorts of excuses of why I wanted a holiday. I'd just say it was some sort of festival and they let me not come to school. <laughs> I didn't know what boys were like. I chased them around the corridor to be their friends and I had to be stopped. And I was completely out of control. And if I didn't have an English teacher who dressed like a man and who wore men's shoes with three-quarter dresses and had the biggest breasts you'd ever seen in your life and was one of the first few PhDs at Melbourne University, she picked me up by the scruff of the neck and took me to live in her house and put me in PLC. And when I got to PLC, I was meant to be a boarder, but the headmistress said in front of me, we can't have these native girls, they're women at 11. And I thought, what the hell is she talking about? Well, there was the beginnings of being sexualized in a boarding school. Mm -hmm. Then they were gonna put me with a caretaker at PLC in Burwood. The suburb was so, Desperately lonely, I can't tell you. But I loved being in a community of girls. Mm. So it's an only child. And, and they couldn't put me at the caretaker's house because he had three sons. So you can see how they looked at the little piece of black velvet, which is what I used to be called in the street. But you know what? I was so deprived for a father that anybody who whistled at me, I thanked them or smiled or waved. You have to understand why girls become wayward, what they call wayward. So anyway, I was put in PLC and thank friggin' Christ for that because I then got back into the kind of middle-class culture. I uh, didn't take much notice of the rules and regulations because I could break them because of being different. So you can see how your sexuality as you're growing up is you can be seen on one side to be kind of like a slut and the other side to be uh, uh, an, an enfant terrible or an operator. It's kind of impossible, isn't it? Yeah, to make choices. Mm. So I had a very colourful life that was enhanced by the most loving of white people and migrants whose families I ran to and took refuge in from time to time because I had to go to the immigration department once in three months and the first question was, do you have a white boyfriend because of the white Australian policy? And they didn't ask me anything else about myself. So when I was unhappy with my landlady, I just ran away. Yeah. And the school, uh, I was now at PLC, so I was right in Burwood. It was very hard to run away. But I went from house to house and... Finally, my girlfriend, Moni, 
the femme fatale, yes. arrived in Australia, went to Monash University, lived in flats, mm. and I joined her and got stroppy and naughty and we, fought, we lived in Inkerman Street and fought with lots of little old Jewish ladies who wanted us to go home. So we used to say, you go back to Israel. So you can see the kind of class wars and the religious wars and everything in a new country. Mm. Never gave a thought to the Aboriginal people until I traveled and saw white and black toilets and saw that, that they were caged up and had disease and, and despair. And on my 40th birthday, I remember having a complete breakdown that I never asked permission from a single Aboriginal person to live in this country. And within a month, I had an Aboriginal girlfriend. I uh, had relationships with Aboriginal people in Fitzroy. And I am a great believer that if you don't ask the questions, you'll never resolve things. So there, everything was a lesson to me. But mainly I was a refugee in my culture, that I was watching my back, hoping that if somebody killed somebody, it would not be a coloured person. So I could go around the streets not feeling bad that day. All those sort of things. So I started growing up. I come out of university. I work as a social worker and in the, east, the western suburbs. And my caseload is full of girls who either go out and have a good time, get picked up at two in the morning, walking barefoot in the street with their high heels in their hands. Police take them straight into custody. They're in isolation for two days. By that time, they've already cut themselves. White girls? White girls, Aboriginal girls, mm. right? Just, you could go to a party, be walking home at two in the morning. If you're under the age of 18, you are incarcerated. In Melbourne. In Melbourne. Wow. And I could not believe, I'd say, why are you here? And they'd say, exposed. And I'd say, what exposed me? It meant exposed to moral danger. And you got incarcerated, you got initiated into um, uh, uh, jail culture, but for young people under 18. And the other half of my caseload was people who were having babies by their fathers or their boyfriends. Not one of those men ever, ever, ever got in the picture. Not one of their mothers supported them. They felt betrayed by their daughters. They were going out in the daytime at five in the morning to work to bring money home to raise families. And their husbands were going out late at night and coming home at five in the morning and getting into bed with their daughters. All those girls, if they didn't have a family that supported them, went to con convents, where the convents influenced them in having their babies adopted and treated them like servants in the laundry, Abbotsford Convent. Mm -hmm. I fought with nuns, I fought with parents, I fought with fathers, until I was quite grown up by this time. I'd already married once and fortunately realized that I wanted more to have children. So I, we split and we're still good friends. And then of course I met David Tolley, mm. who was the most beautiful father. And I watched him with his two little children and I had the pleasure of bringing them up with him and shared them with his wife and him. <laughs>
David and I had the most beautiful life together. And the Women's Trust was a way in which at the age of 30 years ago, I started to see what the difference between being a feminist and being a rebel was about, between being an activist and being just enraged. So that now with domestic violence, even in, in casual relationships, mm. because men, I mean, the trust worked very hard to get rid of provocation. Uh, but before the days of provocation, every second woman was smashed around if she didn't behave herself, what they call behave herself. And so I've had an incredible life of learning about the law, about inequity, and about women's rage. And in the meantime, my, my, my boyfriend, David Tolly, was a beautiful bass player who was singing for music, it's finding the song in yourself. And for a jazz bass player to give up going boom, 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 boom for everyone like the drummer, the bloody slaves in the band, he was started not only to mouth the tune that he was singing, but to play it on the bass like Scott LaFaro and those amazing uh, drummers who played cymbals like you were singing. So I heard bells and I heard scrapings and I heard songs and I heard the deep voice of a father in the bass and the sonorous sound of jazz and the sadness of jazz. And then we had big, uh, Brian Brown uh, had been used to having a lot of bands and David was the bass player in his band. And he, David was the stalwart with Brian in playing improvised music when people thought it was wanking and jazz people thought it was lunacy. And when David had electric bass, it was considered almost bad language. And when David had a synthesizer, uh, they thought it was just unreal, this man walking around listening to quadraphonic sound. Was that in the 80s? Yeah, 80s. And, um, and finally, uh, the drummer in the band uh, influenced Brian to tell David to leave the band. And seeing as David in the Whitlam area, had, Ira had written a grant for us with Brian, mm. where we were per paid to practice. And I used to listen to them play. And one day Brian came to me and he said, here's a string of cowbells. You ring them whenever you want. And the first concert I ever did was in Dallas Brooks Hall. And I was waving to all my friends. And I remember Ted Vining saying, Duke, don't do that. It's so uncool. I said, but they're my friends. So and you hadn't played music or performed before? No. Wow. And then uh, Brian would come up and talk to me to tell me the next piece would be this. And could I play that, 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 that. So I'd think, okay, that, 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 uh, right? With the cowbell or something. I'd stop playing while he was talking to me. Like all musicians play even when they talk, you know. And that was like they were so embarrassed by me. But never David, <laughs> never David, never David. And before long, I got friendly with Billy Hyde. And he brought all these South American percussion instruments out. And I was listening to Aito and, and his woman, Flora Perium. And then, when David got kicked out, 
I didn't stay in the band. I went with him, and we started playing uh, improvised music for hours. It drove nearly drove lots of people mad, but it always had art, art, um, movies or slides that connected. So it was like a film. Always had politics, protests from everything from South Africa to Aboriginal issues. Uh, always had a performance. Um, a component so the personal was political and we didn't talk about it we just did it and anything from making a cup of tea and sitting with some toast in the middle of a piece or something and then people like lots of different people filter law all those people came and spent time with us in our homes we we, we bought a factory where people there were plenty of space to feed and 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 nurture friendships in music making and people came and split off, like young people, like gorgeous um, saxophone player, Julian Wilson. He was so open and he loved playing with us. But eventually he hit a brick wall and he had to go away to America and study and, and do what he had to do. Like lots of people came and went and some bad mouthed us and some didn't, but we nurtured them and looked after them and welcomed them and loved playing. And we listened to everything we played. We recorded everything we played, everything. And then we would then, this would be like one in the morning and then by two, three we would listen to it and lie around and laugh. And so we got unafraid of hearing where we were not listening. And it was about listening. It wasn't about skill. And it wasn't about prowess. And it wasn't about making a statement. So there were no solos, but you could actually speak louder. And we had, you know, everybody... Ren Walters, Carolyn Connors, and lots and lots of people who are dead and alive. And we went to, because we we played with Brian Brown, we had such success. We had flowers in the dressing room, and people bringing us joints and making records and all the kind of stuff that is about the rock and roll of life. This was serious wanting to make music. So people like La Mama were doing what, you know, La Mama still does, allowing people to do what they want to do. And James Clayton did sort of a whole lot of word things with us. And David Brown was a catatonic 18-year-old playing the double bass that David wasn't playing. And so it went on like that, where we had a history of just playing improvised music. And I used to have my own mixer and my own roadie, a woman who was tough. And because people used to come and play my instruments while I was playing including musicians, like so rude, I can't tell you. The other thing I did was I used contact mics on everything because I decided I was never going to play time again. I was just going to use my fingertips. So I had half a beer keg that I could play and it sounded like the best European uh, cathedral bell. And then I also put things through the echo and through the, uh, what's the other thing? Uh, there's two kinds of ways in which... A delay, a delay and, re and, and? Reverb. Reverb. Yeah. And I had a mixer. Who did it? I just looked up wow. and give him a signal. Yes. 
we had quadraphonic sound and we wore headphones. Mm. And so people thought we were complete wankers. <laughs> and we you also well and we also had headphones that show, that made us hear everything people were hearing. And we also had a, a mechanism in which we'd start a concert by having somebody walking around with a recorder and recording everybody's conversations mm. and that filled the room. Mm. And um, we did a lot of things with uh, what people do in courses when they do sound. Yeah. And David started the first sound course at Preston Institute, which was the most progressive art school at the time. And so, uh, whereas you had Latrobe nearby being terribly intellectual, you know, so you got different kinds of things happening. But David was largely unnoticed because the painting world, when he was a painter and, and a drawer, the head of, uh, of Paran Art School took all his students' work from one day and brought all the staff in, very famous people now, and said, what is wrong with these paintings? And nobody said anything, and he said, what's wrong with these paintings is there's no Paran School. There was no kind of cohesive... Isn't that a good thing? Not one they of those famous... all the same? And not one of his colleagues helped, argued, the, and he left. Yeah. So when he went to Preston Institute, he decided he would never be a um, supervisor or he would just be a lecturer. Mm. And he, of course, combined music with painting, with drawing. His drawing classes were fantastic. It was packed. And he'd get like two lesbians, or you know, the models, or a mother feeding a baby, or... Um, somebody who had a really uh, deformed body. You know. um, but they had visitors and philosophers and architects giving lectures. The, the course was so interesting that I'd go out there and just listen to everything that was going on. And there was real dialogue. And people like Morty Palmer was one of David's students, you know, but a mature age student. There were thinkers and lots of dancers. And uh, Dom DeClario was on there, Dale Hickey, uh, Peter Cole, all painters and everything, but David was also music. So mm. music world, he wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't important to them. The painting world, not important, but a Renaissance man. Uh, wrote poetry, wrote a play about a man called Jason who had uh, 12 women, like samurais, and was eventually killed by a computer program. And he, he commissioned from Jim Brosnan, uh, the first Australian-made music uh, um, synthesizer, that big to carry. And we toured with it. We had two vans. We had a mixer, a lighting person, and two girlfriends. One was a photographer and the other one sort of did research for where we'd eat the Beth Health Food Shop or whatever. And in the meantime, I joined Stephanie's restaurant and became Stephanie's partner, and I was in the food world. Stephanie Alexander. Yeah. So, um, in the meantime, um, I have to say that I played with five men in band, with Brian's this band, and it was called a quartet when there was five of us. But yeah. when we toured, I had my own room. And it was like a honeymoon for David and me. We had the happiest time together. But it was never called a quintet? No. And who's, that was Brian's choice? I think they were, they were just beginning to see that uh, 
that uh, marketing was important. And it was a man's world. But, you know, I was spoilt by all of them. Ted Vining, um, uh, Bob Sedegreen, David and Brian. And Brian, uh, we ate well, we laughed, we traveled, we played music. And we played original Australian music as well. And they played jazz in the breaks, you know, in the in the compositions. And Brian was so romantic and so gorgeous about me. Like I was the sort of daughter that his daughters had gone away on a boat playing on in orchestras and stuff, you know. That he used to write, if he wrote a composition, he'd do a drawing with flowers and butterflies and everything to show where I, I can play, areas I can play in, like a picture. Like yeah. yeah cool. And you know, I think how ironic Ros McMillan is a teacher of creative music and uh, she asked me today if I'd open her conference, her next conference of creative teachers in Victoria. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? And she said, just about how you got to play music and what you think music is about. And I said, well, it's only about singing your own song, you know. But in the meantime, I did things like I did, I sucked eggs and I, you know, I, 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 um, and with slides of me swallowing eggs and I, I, I put things on my body and cooked and I served food and I cut up, uh, David cut up a big ox heart and we hung it all with the blood and, you know, we, we put out a record together called uh, Cut Heart and uh, ironically, without doing any work to immortalise David, last week I got a call that David Brown and another guy are putting their own money into cutting our record again into vinyl, you know, it's a vinyl and it'll be out in November and you know and Ros asking me to do this and talking to you that music is like any other fraternity you never leave it and you can choose to come back to it at any time and I can't tell you how endearing it is to have musical relationships with women other women with Stephanie's with working at youth welfare with working in music, I always understood the principles and broke the rules. Now I understand the principles, but I work hard on the research, the fact, not the fantasy, and try and have strategies. Even for the first time in all my life of giving speeches from the age of about 22, I'm actually going to visit the person who asks me, ask them why, listen to why they ask me, ask questions and think for weeks before it happens. I still can't write a speech, but I can actually plan so I'm not winging it and forgetting the worthwhile things or just blowing it out my ass, as some people say. You know, so it's very important to, to claim your harsh uh, lessons to own them and to make amends. That's all, I don't, you know, I want to grow old graciously and gracefully. And graceful simply means coming to terms with no more half empty, half full for me. The cup runneth over. To be asked to do a podcast is to be given the opportunity to think about yourself because I will ask for the full tape to hear what I didn't need to say, to hear what I didn't say, 
and to leave you the power to shape it, to suit your artwork. And I just can't believe that I'm living to be able to work with someone who's nearly two lifetimes away from me in age. Because 73, and how old are you? 34. 34 is just unbelievable. <laughs> but I'm never going to give up. You know, and I'm never going to get involved in the rhetoric of criticizing other women and, and naming and shaming men. But I want to have relationships with men where I can join with some strategies that make us all step up together. And music is about finding, it's a form of therapy. It's absolute artwork. It's the work of the art of your life and the art of your song. And it's for everyone. Yeah. And because it's a monetary system that has certain requirements, it's very important for us to keep questioning everything we do that we say is personal and political. And with music, it's no point making differences. Everybody has a song that they want to hear that's quite different. And I think one of the things about improvised music is that it's gone away from the ritual of music making. And it's, it, 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 it's it affecting all the um, composers. So people are composing with what was a sort of anarchist thing that where people were playing simultaneously and thinking they were playing music, or people were getting, were going on drugs or on alcohol and thinking they were being expressive, when in fact they were being narcissistic because they couldn't listen. And I think Miles Davis found that out with one of his recordings. But of course nobody picked up the message, they just thought it was important to be black and cool. And David had to, had to face that he was playing the black man's music and he could never play it as well as them. And what did he need to have to keep singing their gospel songs or their blues or whatever? But that doesn't mean our hearts don't break and we can't use the blues. And of course, we were not listening to Aboriginal mouthings, words, sounds, relationship with the earth, relationship with water. It's right in front of us. And so I feel that I've been humbled by um, Realizing the privilege of the position I had in music making, because it was historic, however, that's nothing, not enough to rest your laurels on. What's more important is how you've taken the journey since. Yeah, and that you keep working. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that you don't idealize or idolize, because it's just little boy and little girl's fantasies. Can we, I cut you off before, can we go back to Stephanie? Yes. I met Stephanie at a time when she had a little restaurant in Brunswick Street and, and, and I wanted to get out of youth welfare because my partner had suggested to me, David Tolley, that because I didn't have a teenage life, I should take some time off and look at it. So I gave up being a very good youth welfare officer for my, for my clients, but not for my employers because I was fighting the government all the time about the restrictions of the way in which we were uh, meant to look after the wards of the state. 
and um, I shared a job because I was playing music with David. I wanted to share the job, so I didn't. Music was first. Stephanie's was second. But when we moved into Brunswick Street, there was upstairs in Brunswick Street spare brothel on one side, the pram factory on the other. So uh, I immediately um, realized that I had organizational powers because, it's interesting that I say power, skill, because I had come from middle-class country where we had servants and my family liked being government servants. So there was dignity in being in service. Whereas Australians were rebelling against being treated like convicts and then rebelling against the guilt and the horror of what their situation was. So when you have a waitress and she had to go to a table and they say, we're not ready, she was ready to fight with them. So she'd come back and say, fuck them. You know, I'm not going back for 10 minutes. And then I would have to say, come with me. It's your turn to look after this person. And then in Australia, you can go home, get changed, come to a restaurant, and the, someone else is looking after you. In many countries, you wouldn't even dream of going to the restaurant where you worked, leave alone be treated well. So I had to deconstruct the attitude towards being in service, the, the kind of sense of entitlement that came from wanting to fight all the time to survive to a culture of being so hospitable. People are desperate for connection and purpose. And many people I know who are very happy found them way through technology. Uh, I found liberation through technology because I was able to use, you know, um, recording and um, working with uh, recording techniques like you do. Yeah. And I was able to have communication with people. But I don't, I don't have Facebook. It's too much responsibility. I can hardly live 24 hours without feeling overwhelmed with all the things I need to do because my pace is one third now. But I don't play time. I play sounds and I play, I, I sing songs. I, I mean, I used to have lots of bells and I could, I could do an orchestra of bells. I love it. I, I'm lost in it. You know, it's beautiful. And bells and gongs and, and, and um, I had a mother gong and a father gong. And I had two sibling gongs, you know, they were twins. Uh, they were the Chinese uh, wind gongs. And they both had a different feel. I used, I used microphones on all the cymbals, but I also tried to play the cymbals with a stick in making fun of the most magnificent cymbal players in jazz. I thought their feather work was like tap dancing. And I've been inspired by every genre of music. And I'm so lucky, so lucky. Can we? I don't want to keep you. No, I want to say, and we don't. I don't want to go. In, I mean, I don't know where I'm at because I've just talked about myself, not about music. Do you want to talk about right now, or about any? You know, do you have sort of any projects or plans or things that you? I have my only project is to grow all graciously, and gracefully, and to die resolved, and useful and to be useful and to be, um, and to deal with the rage that I feel about the injustice of inequity 
any injustice of being Aboriginal. Very happy.